Welcome to the Harley Rabbit. I'm Harley, your hostess for the evening. Can I take your coat? Thank you. Please follow me. Sit down, please. It's a little loud in here, isn't it? That's better. It's so fun to explore your kinks. You can learn so much about yourself. And that's why Slade and I built this place. It's kind of like a virtual secret cinema where you get to experience all kinds of BDSM fantasies, all from the privacy of your own headphones. So let's talk about you. What fantasies would you like to experience here? Many of our members don't know what they like yet, and they use our fantasies to learn about what works for them. Other members come here to experience something they probably wouldn't want to happen in real life, like an abduction fantasy, for example. If I have piqued your curiosity, then please pay us a visit. You can listen to some of our fantasies for free, or you can use the code INTUIT at the checkout and get 25% off any paid fantasy of your choice. Find us at harleyrabbit.com and let's see where the rabbit hole takes you. Turns out I'm into it. Into it. Hey, hey there, friends. It is Harley Rabbit here. Welcome back to another episode of Turns Out I'm Into It, the show helping you discover your kinky self and live your best sex life. Do you ever find yourself curious about the more extreme, darker, taboo side of kink and BDSM? I know I certainly do. For example, have you ever wondered what it might be like if you were abducted by a stranger and locked in a basement for days at a time? Well, that is exactly what we're going to be talking about on today's episode. I was fortunate enough to do an interview with a FetLifer who goes by the name of Cruciator. Cruciator has decades of experience in kink and EDSM and he specialises in abduction play and multi-day scenes. Now, I honestly could have talked to this man for hours because his knowledge of kink and BDSM was so deep. But in this episode, we focus mostly on the abduction play, mainly because this is a huge bucket list item for me personally. Um, and it's also really interesting listening. There's not many people in the world that do this kind of stuff. Now, obviously, with the more extreme scenes like this, um, there's a lot of risk involved. So we'll be discussing some of Cruciator's processes and how he goes about uh, making those scenes as safe and fulfilling as possible. That said, this is definitely not a how-to guide, um, especially if you're new to kink. I do not recommend starting with something like this. It's very important that you and your partner both have a solid understanding of your own boundaries and your own desires before you go attempting something at this level. This episode is more intended to be aspirational, as it will give you an idea of the kind of experiences that are possible with the right partner. Okay? All right, so before we jump in, I've got a couple of announcements to get through. First of all, because of the nature of the content that I cover on this podcast, and today is a very good example of that, um, there is always a small possibility that I could get shut down. The guidelines around adult content are super vague on almost every platform, so it's really hard to make sure that I'm adhering to them. And for that reason, there's always a risk that I could get banned. So if you would like to make sure that we can stay in contact in the off chance that I did get banned, um, the best way 
for us to stay in touch is if you're a member of my website, harleyrabbit.com. It's free to join um, and that way I'll have your email address and if I do get shut down, I'll be able to send you an email and let you know where else I've respawned on the internet. So to become a member, just head over to harleyrabbit.com, click the members tab and then become a member. Secondly, if you're curious about maybe experiencing a multi-day abduction scene yourself, but you don't really have the right partner or you're not really sure about the risks involved, I may have the next best thing for you. As many of you know, I make immersive audio experiences and these cover all kinds of taboo fantasies and they specialize in CNC. These fantasies are fully immersive. They contain all kinds of realistic sound effects and voice acting. And best of all, you can listen to them in complete safety and privacy with your own headphones. This week, I have just released the final chapter of the abduction series, which is a five-part abduction story and very, very relevant to the kinds of scenes that we'll be discussing in today's episode. So if you would like to start exploring some of your CNC desires and supporting me in the process, head over to harleyrabbit.com forward slash box office and use the code Intuit for a 25% discount on any fantasy. That's just for listeners of this podcast. Lastly, if you would like to educate yourself more in the area of abduction play and CNC, Cruciator is actually running a workshop over Zoom. He's going to be doing that in January, toward the end of January. Um, so you'll be able to get a link to buy a ticket to that on his profile on FetLife, as well as in the show notes for this episode. I've also included in the show notes any other resources that get mentioned in this episode if you'd like to do some further reading. All right, with all of that said, let's jump into today's episode. Obviously, there's some massive trigger warnings here. If you are triggered by any kind of consensual non-consent play, this episode isn't for you. And that's fine. We all have our boundaries. But if this topic does pique your curiosity, then please join me as we go deeper down the rabbit hole than ever before. Please listen with an open mind. Here is my interview with Cruciator. I'm into it. 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 All right. Well, welcome, Cruciator, to the podcast. I am very excited to speak to you tonight. Um, I'm a big fan of your FetLife profile and very curious to ask you about all your CNC and abduction scenes, your multi-day scenes. Um, I'm definitely a CNC sub and I would like to explore a lot of my fantasies in much more detail um, so I feel like you're the perfect person to ask about your experiences <laughs> in this space. Um, so yeah, welcome. Thank you. It's good to talk about all of this. Yeah. It's not every day that we get to chat about this sort of stuff, right? No, not at all. Very um, rare. So I thought I'd first of all, let you, I guess, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you identify in the BDSM space. Like, what do you... You, you you list yourself as a sadist on FET? Yeah, I think sadist is is definitely the way I go. I got into BDSM pretty young. I was 16 when I started actively doing it, which was 1992. Wow. wow. So I've, I've got quite a history with it. Um, back then, there was no BDSM yet. There was no DS. So I was very much into the S&M side of things. I've never been interested in DS. Um, wow. So I, I like to, 
yeah, I it, I think I think that's a real modern thing, the whole obsession with dominance and submission. I, I don't think it's if you go back in the sort of history of the area, it, it wasn't really the focus. It was more much more sadomasochism and the whole idea of uh, those kinds of areas and maybe a bit of master slave and that kind of stuff. But yeah. the whole thing with DS. There's a complicated history with it. I'm I'm kind of I'm very interested in the history of this whole area. So I've got my own kind of archive that I've collected over the years and I'm very interested in how things evolved and changed and the influence of different countries and cultures and how, for example, the US has had a big influence since the internet on on Europe. And so that's kind of changed how a lot of people look at things and I'm wow, sure Australia yeah. as well. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Well, I've learned something already. I mean, I had just assumed that DS was kind of there since the beginning, but obviously not. Yeah, I mean, well, in the 90s, you didn't hear DS and you didn't hear BDSM. Everyone used to just say SM okay. or SM. Um, and then. I guess it was some time around the early 2000s you started to hear people talking more in terms of DS. I'm, I'm talking very specifically about the UK. This may not have been the case in other countries, yeah. but in, in the UK, that was very much how it was. Um, and then things started to change. And I think that idea of DS being the default, which it seems to have become now, yeah. has been really a lot to do with fat life and the internet so i think that's really been in the last 10 to 15 years really wow that is very interesting i feel like i could do an entire podcast episode just on the history of bdsm and sadomasochism and all of that um definitely should <laughs> yeah well i might have to have you back because there's a few things i want to ask you about your profile is very interesting um but you've obviously so you've obviously been in the scene for quite some time. You, your first experience was back when you were sixteen. Wow, that would have been a scary world to enter back then, um, without much experience in in sex at all to be thrown into uh, this world. Was that difficult to navigate? I I was kind of lucky with that because I knew I was interested in it, and I. Um just by chance met an older mentor who um, he, he happened to be part of the, the scene and he was um, already active in going to fetish clubs like Torture Garden in London. Um, so essentially I, I started going to a few fetish clubs even at that age, which yes, was technically um, underage, but right. in those days people didn't really care to. <laughs> yeah about like checking people's ids and stuff so um so yeah that was that was really the beginning of of me exploring all of that kind of thing and then um i also spent some time in paris which had an influence on me as well my first i guess serious partner was was french and lived in paris so that sort of added in as well. And then I got very interested in the Marquis de Sade and um, different kinds of uh, Leclos, the uh, author of Dangerous Liaisons and people like that, different writers and very interested in, in literature and French philosophy and 
that all those kinds of things started feeding into my my interests as well. Yeah, you you mentioned to me um, in a direct message on FET that you were very interested in or influenced by is it George Bataille? Bataille. George Bataille. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I knew I was going to butcher that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's a, a French philosopher. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about his influence on you? That's a bit more recent, I would say. Okay. I, I did I did have a book by him back when I was a teenager, but I think it was maybe too much for me to to get into at the time. It yeah. was uh, and it, Yeah, and it had a lot of references to other philosophical ideas which I wasn't really aware of at the time. Um he was referencing people like Michel Foucault and or, or um was it Foucault? Anyway, he was referencing other other writers. Um, so I was finding that a little bit too much back then. And then and then more recently, I revisited him because I I'd heard about this idea of the limit experience, which really resonated with me because it's this idea of you have you have an experience when you're most truly alive in a sense when you lose your awareness of yourself when you when all of the notions of who you are break down for a, for a, for a moment in an experience so it can be something like when you're on in a life threatening situation because you you have to just go into almost like autopilot you have mm. to let go of everything in order to just survive in that situation or it could be something where you're deeply in fear or you're deeply experiencing pain or lots of different things that push you to your limit in some way either psychologically or physically or a mixture of the two um and this obviously can relate to certain types of bdsm breath play um forms of uh, pain experience cnc different things like that so it became something that I was really fascinated by and then the more you look into his his writings he wrote erotica he wrote philosophy and also he looked at ideas around uh life and death and how uh sexuality and death can be sort of interlinked in in the psyche and he was a bit of a mystic as well and i'm interested in spiritual and magical ideas as well so yeah, yeah he kind of <laughs> ticks a lot of boxes for me in terms of what I'm interested in. Yeah, wow. I'm I'm really curious about the the limit experiences uh and how that relates to the more extreme kink scenes that you do and um yeah, you mentioned on your profile what was it? Um that you're not so much into the the social side of BDSM that you're more into like not so much the munches and the parties and stuff, but it's more about a human connection or the depth of human yeah. experience. Yeah. Is that what yeah. you're sort of referring to here with the, the limit experiences being able to, um, I guess, share that with another person or. Yeah. For me, I, I, uh, I explored the sort of public side of things to a degree early on, but then I, I guess I felt that to go to the, the depth that I really wanted to, and to have the kinds of experiences that I really wanted to, it wasn't something that you can really do in in a more public space where there's less control over the space where there's um 
control in a sort of social sense mm. in, in in the scene you know things like that which is which all makes sense you know the safety protocols and the limits on what can be done in those kinds of environments it all makes sense in in that environment you're but at the same time like, I would... play parties and stuff like that is that what you're referring yeah, to? yeah 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 but i but i wanted something more in terms of my my own experience because for me it is much more I do want to get to those limit experiences. I do want to get to that point where there's something almost transformative happening yeah. in the experience and it gets to those raw kind of core emotions and uh, psychological levels that I don't think you can get to on in a more kind of play party kind of context. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I think, I mean, for me, I, I enjoy events for the social aspect of meeting other people and um, I guess potentially finding play partners that I like, it's a good way to vet people or just find people you click with. But um, yeah, in terms of playing with this, the more extreme kind of stuff, I can see what you mean where that would be quite limiting. Um, you, you really want to be able to set your own rules and your own boundaries and not have to worry about what anybody else is thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm getting way ahead of myself and I've got some questions in front of me. I want to go back to, um, way back to the start. You mentioned in one of your writings, I think it was a rape and abduction writing, that you had some of these desires um, where you first noticed these desires back as early as kindergarten. Can you yeah. elaborate on that, like what that was like? Like obviously this is before you have any understanding of of sex or any of that. Yeah. 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 Um, well, it, they are pretty much my first memories. I have a, a couple of wow. other vague memories, but pretty much uh, my first memories from, it was a very unusual kindergarten um, for <laughs> a few reasons. One of the reasons was the playground was on the roof. Okay. Uh, and it had a kind of, bars it had like a fence around the obviously around the roof so yes. that the kids didn't fall off basically <laughs> yep um but they were kind of like bars so it was basically like you were in a cage when you yeah. were up there yeah um then the other interesting thing was yeah. down in the basement which was i think where some of the toilets were or they had like baths or showers or something down there my memory is pretty vague now obviously <laughs> um but they they had some stuff down there that we used to go down there for mm -hmm. but there was also this large what i think was probably looking back was probably a coal storage unit from oh. the days when they used to use coal to heat heat places yeah by the time I was at the nursery, obviously they weren't using coal anymore, so it was now empty. So it was this big steel unit with wow. a door on the front. Um, so it was basically like yeah. a cell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see where that might have sparked the imagination. <laughs> yeah, so so my early my early thoughts or whatever, my kind of attraction to some of the other girls I remember, like in my class, like in in this nursery school um i would imagine kind of locking them in there and yeah. keeping them in that in that uh unit and would also 
kind of enjoy the the aesthetic, I guess, of the bars and etc. Yep. on the roof. Yep. So I think some of those memories and some of those ideas definitely fed into ideas of captivity and bondage and things like that later on when I when I started to become more aware of sexuality or or things like BDSM. Yeah, well, was, especially if you're saying these are some of your earliest memories, they're obviously important to you. They, they obviously meant something. Um, like when I, when I think back, I've got some, like, I, I mean, I can relate on some level to having those kinds of feelings when I was a very young child, when I was about six or seven, and not really understanding that they were the beginnings of erotic fantasies but they made me feel different. There was something that really felt different about those memories to any other mundane daily life memories. Um, for me, I remember seeing there was a, uh, I don't know if you remember the film clip to uh, Dr. Jones by Aqua, um, which was, I don't know, like early. Well, don't say I do, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's all right. It's just, it's a silly pop film clip. And I actually watched it recently and it was very different to what I remember. Or the, the part that I remember was only a, a, maybe a three-second frame. But I, as a kid, I remember seeing um, the lead singer is, like, tied up on a, a pole and that she's stuck on an island and, and all the, the um, villagers there are going to take her and roast her over the fire. Like, she's their captive kind of thing. And that really, for some reason, stuck out in my brain as, oh, that feels good to watch that, like, I mean, I was six, I had no idea why, but yeah, it's crazy how early these things um, are within us. It makes me feel like this is something that we're on some level born with rather than learned or it's not necessarily a result of something that's happened to us. Yeah, um, I think there's a mix of factors for sure. I mean, I, I, I also am neurodivergent, so also I think that's a factor in it as well uh, okay. for me because I think um, with some of the I guess with some of the aspects of that being uh, drawn and looking for sensation and things like that so that yeah. relates a lot to ADHD and things like um, low levels of dopamine and, and that kind of stuff so I think probably in my early not early life I was also drawn to things that were maybe more intense than the average kid. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Are you have you ever um, been on the masochistic side of the spectrum, or have you always been on the sadist side? That's interesting. I think I've always been on the sadist side, but I did used to do things to myself around around the age of eleven. Yeah. But I I tend to refer to it as auto sadism. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Because my interest was not in a masochistic way. It was I just didn't have anyone to do those things to. So I experimented of myself. But my interest was always more from the sadist perspective. So I call it autosadism. <laughs> That's great. I like that. Um, so just to make sure I'm understanding that properly, it's not so much about the pain or the sensation, but it's more about inflicting it or I mean I'm, yeah. I'm definitely on the bottom end of this so I, I'm I don't know if I really understand the top mentality as well 
But yeah, like what would you? I, give I, I it did out enjoy about? the sensations for sure. Okay. Um, but but the motivation, the driving force, was more um, experimentation with with what what it was like to do these specific actions, um, and and they involved basic things that I had available using. Um, toothpaste for example because it mm -hmm. has like a burning sensation if you leave it on uh for a while um ice um yep. heating metal up things like that quite basic uh what things that an 11 year old could get access to <laughs> knives i guess as well and um playing around with chains for, for bondage and stuff yeah. knives and chains were probably the first things that i i got into Wow. There's a lot of, uh, sounds like you had a lot of curiosity at that age. Yeah, yeah, I did for sure. I did a lot of drawings as well. Um, and they developed and also poems and things like that, that were all related to, I would say, sadism or sexuality. Yeah, as a way of exploring some of those feelings and, and ideas. Yeah. Did you ever struggle with like as you got older and more aware, did you ever struggle with feelings of shame around this side of yourself? Um, not, not, and not really. Um, I, I wasn't raised in any kind of religious context, so I didn't have that mm -hmm. uh, thing in there. No, not really. I, I, I always found it quite natural and was quite frustrated more by how society views mm -hmm. things and how, yeah. Society is still very hypocritical and sex negative and all of that kind of stuff. And that's always maybe frustrated me more how someone's life could be ruined just by an interest in those things, even though most mm. of us really are interested in something along those lines and how, you know, no one in the public arena will admit, say, to watching porn, for example, even though we know that probably 90% of, of them do. are. Yeah. 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 But nobody will openly admit it or defend it in any way, which yeah. is also frustrating how no one will defend anything of a sexual nature. So I think all those kinds of things uh, were quite big for me as a teenager. I remember I, I got into activism and political ideas because of that, really. I remember reading a book called Pornography in a Free Society, and then I read another one on on defending BDSM rights and then another book about uh, the Spanner case. Uh, if you don't know about that, it was where a group of gay men in the UK were arrested and convicted for consensual SM and it set the precedent in UK law. So it, it meant that now a lot of things are technically illegal in the UK because of basically because of uh, that ruling, which was full of prejudice, full of homophobia yeah. and just disqualified people's right to consent to what happens to their own bodies, basically. And that that's still affecting the laws in the UK now, did you say? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's still it's still valid and there's even been some recent laws that have cemented it even more, like a recent law where some misguided radical feminists campaigned uh, to make an accident not be uh, admissible as a defence if someone were to die during a choking scene or some kind of 
asphyxiation scene. So if it was if it was an accident, that person can't use that as a defence anymore in the UK. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, definitely driving up the risk factors there for that kind of play. I mean, not that we want to, we definitely want to avoid anything like that happening, but um, obviously this kind of play does come with some real risks, especially when you you're playing with the more extreme end of things. Well, yeah. it's it's it doesn't need to be uh, genuinely life threatening or anything, but I think. Um, I think there does need to be a real awareness of safety. And I think the unfortunate side of making things illegal and uh, causing more and more laws to be brought through that limit these kinds of things, it just makes educating people on these topics more difficult and ironically leads to them being more dangerous because if people are not discussing them publicly and they can't, openly say I'm going to teach someone how to do this thing then then it just ultimately means that people do it anyway but they just do it in a more dangerous way yeah there's no no access to information or less access yeah well I really want to ask you about um the way you go about uh mitigating risks and and um safety and incorporating as much safety as you can into your scenes but before I go into that I wanted to ask you about some of the scenes that you've done um there was a couple that you mentioned in uh the rape and abduction writing on FET that I I read um the one that really stuck out to me was where you'd set up a scene with a woman in a different country and she'd mm-hmm. flown in and did you, like, in air quotes here, abduct her from the airport? Or what did that scene look like? Or, and what did the lead up to that scene look like as well? We, we made contact on, on Fat Life, um, okay. started communicating initially via text messages and back and forth on Fat. And she expressed that she had this fantasy of an abduction but she wanted to keep it as anonymous as possible she was happy to kind of reveal stuff about herself but she didn't want to know too much about me other than have the conversation but she didn't want to see my face she didn't want to know my name yeah so we continued uh communicating like that um we then moved to a chat app and she would sometimes put the video on and um, say things and show me things, etc. But I, I kept sort of hidden, essentially. Okay. Um, Showing you what sort of things? <laughs> well, like, um, was this is, as in um, things that she wanted you to do? Or was it more just sexy back and forth? All kinds of things. Just, okay. just to give me, like, a background on what her fantasy was, to find out what my fantasies are like and... You know, just to exchange our our mutual interests and goals in that area, kind of thing. So, so that continued along those lines. Um, and then at the time, I was I was not living in the UK anyway, and uh, she wasn't in the UK either. She was elsewhere in Europe. So, we decided to meet in a in a country that neither of us was based in. Oh, wow. Okay. 
but but I knew I knew the country quite well, and I knew that there were good locations. I was going to say you'd you'd need to know the right location yeah. that's going to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd I'd used places in that that area a few times in the past, so I I knew it well. Yep. Okay. Um. So we arranged to do the scene there, and basically she had a, a location to be at. So that's kind of how we worked it out, that she would be in a particular location, which was basically a park. Okay. Um, and uh, she was taken from the park, basically, is how, how, how we did it, and then taken into, the, into a, a basement. It was very close by. I obviously set all that up to make that as easy as possible. Yeah, yeah. She she arrived already like after dark. We arranged that as well, so the chances of anyone seeing anything or anything like that were pretty minimal. Yep. And, that's, and that's nobody, a real concern. <laughs> you don't want people. To yeah. No. No. Nobody. Something's... I'm pretty sure nobody did see anything. Yeah. Uh, we were we were very careful about all of that, um, and. Yeah, so we, we'd agreed that as soon as the door was shut, that would then be kind of no way out, essentially, yeah. other than an emergency or something like that. So the door was, was shut. Um, she was put into bondage, and she stayed in bondage and sensory deprivation most of the time as well wow. for the entire time, and it was... I think that one was four days. Wow. Talking about like altered states, like I've never done anything even close to that long. And like, I, I know just how much your um, consciousness sort of changes when you get, like if I, if I do an impact play scene or something, just purely from that experience, I feel really floaty and really definitely not myself. So I I'm really curious and fascinated by this idea of doing a scene that's over a few days where you could get really deep into um, a different headspace, I guess. Um, but is there that's dangers? That's what I like about it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that that's uh, that sounds so interesting to me. Um, but is there dangers of being too deep in that space? I mean... I guess you've already negotiated all your boundaries and everything beforehand. Yeah, we we'd spent a lot of time, and you know, I knew what her limits were and all of yeah. that kind of thing. So we 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 discussed all of that. Yeah. Um, if I genuinely thought someone was, you know, too too deep, like you say, or you know, experiencing too much stress or fear or something, mm-hmm. like to a point that it was problematic, I would stop the scene okay. um and i have done before okay. um but in that in that particular instance uh there, there wasn't a need to do that there was genuine fear for sure yeah she was uh physically shaking uh at the beginning of the of the scene yeah which i'm sure was adrenaline and also the fear of being in a situation like that so oh even just but, the anticipation of it like <laughs> be waiting in that park i'd be i'd be shaking already <laughs> especially doing something like this with someone that you've you've never seen their face you don't like you obviously had a lot of discussion beforehand but you don't 
you haven't been in each other's vicinity before. So all that would feel really unfamiliar, which I'm sure adds to it as well. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly, exactly what she wanted. Exactly. The whole point of it for her was she wanted it essentially to have a, a, a a realism, you know, because it, to a degree it was real. Mm -hmm. That that's, I mean, that's maybe the difference between this and, you know, maybe some other ways of doing this kind of thing. Cause, and, it, and in many ways, I'm not really advocating this way of doing it. Obviously, this is like something that someone would have to be really sure about because there's a real, there is a high risk there. Yeah. Um, obviously, I knew she was going to be fine and I knew I wasn't going to do anything to her, mm-hmm. to harm her kind of thing. But, you know, she didn't know that for sure. So... And then there's also, there is the risk from my side as well, because there is always the risk that someone could change their mind in the middle of it or decide that, you know, decide that actually this isn't what they wanted or, you know, turn on me and then say, you know, so there is also a risk that that person could be unstable or, you know, they could do something that, that could put me into a difficult situation as well. Definitely, so yeah. it's, it's complicated both ways. So I, I don't think I would ever do a scene like that without at least a kind of month or, or more of communication. Yeah. Well, that was what, I, that was my next question. What, what's your process for vetting people? Like how do you build that trust? Usually a lot of communication, like daily communication for at least a month and usually more like two, maybe even three months before doing something like that. Wow. Okay. So is that what you do anytime you do a scene like this? If it's something like an anonymous abduction or an abduction or a CNC kind of situation, then yeah, that's usually... If it's like that we haven't met in any context before, obviously if it's an established play partner and they say, I want to do an abduction or a CNC, obviously that's different. But, but if it's someone that I've never met and we're creating their fantasy, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, then I would want to do a lot of communication and be sure about where their lines are and all of that kind of thing. So what are what are some of the things that you would ask in that process? Because you're obviously looking for boundaries, but as well you're trying to facilitate their fantasy. So you're wanting to get to know exactly what they want you to do or what they're into. Well, I guess I would start off making sure that we're compatible in that sense because I want it to be what I'm into as well. So yeah, yeah. it would I'm not just facilitating something. I'm also, you know I'm looking for someone who has the, essentially the same fantasy. Yeah, okay. Um, or as close as possible, you know, with, with some movement. So, so, yeah, it would just be a conversation of uh, limits and desires and all of those kinds of things. If, if I do think it's not, like, really, really clear with someone, then I will probably use a list, like a, a fetish list, where they write out what, they like the idea of and what they don't like the idea yeah. of and yeah sort of prompt, prompt those ideas yeah so, yeah so then it's very clear for me that's great um any red flags that you can think of to look out for because i'm curious about finding a partner to do something like this with but i've always i've never been able to do it because it feels too risky for me but i also feel this 
intense desire that I don't want to get to my deathbed to, and I've never done it. Like it's one of those things I think I'll regret not doing, but wanting to do it as safely as possible. And I think one of the biggest uh, risk factors is finding the right person and not just risk factors, but whether it's a, a positive experience, ultimately you've got to find the right person to play with. So is there any, um, yeah, things to look out for both for, for, um, I'm not sure what term to use the, the victim's point of view, like, uh, or yeah. the perpetrator's point of view. Um, yeah. I think from my point of view, I just tend to want to be clear in terms of maybe things like health, mental health, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, to know that the desire is coming from a healthy place. Right. You know, if someone's, very suicidal or something right, like that. Yeah, That's yeah. not a good basis for arranging something like that from my perspective. So I would probably be very cautious if someone was talking about those kinds of things. Um, from from the other side of the coin, from more of more of the uh, victim experiencer, <laughs> whatever we want to call it. From from that perspective, I think it's. Uh, it's important to, I would say, make sure that the person is honest about their experience and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think the most common thing, as someone who moderates a few groups related to rape, play and abduction, etc. as well, yeah. one of the things I notice a lot is people making claims about what they've done, but nothing to substantiate it. Right. And, okay. And, and that's that's i think something that people should definitely look out for so you'll see these posts that that come onto the group like sort of personal yep. ad type things and they say yes and you know um i i've done hundreds of abductions or something you know <laughs> okay. which is obviously straight away a yeah, bit of the yeah. red flag <laughs> but they say things like that and they have um all this kind of talk in the message and it's like, even before I click on their profile, I know there's going to be nothing there. Mm. You can just tell from this attitude of like overconfidence and over sort of arrogance about their abilities and no concern for sort of safety or the practicalities of the details of doing something like that, that they, they're just, you know, they're just fantasizing. They're not, they don't right. really have that experience or knowledge and as soon as you so if you look on a profile and there's nothing there um i don't believe that someone who's been doing these kind of things for years would have no images oh, related absolutely. to it yeah and you know no content related to it that they you know that they've created at all so to me that's it that's a big red flag and if someone's thought a lot about what they're doing they probably would have written about it thought about it put some of that on there yeah. so i think i think the profile speaks a lot about whether someone actually has the the knowledge and the experience to see something like that through and i think also a good thing to vet someone with is to ask you know details in terms of how they would do things because for example a thing that a lot of people overlook especially with a multiple day scenario. Mm. Um, what about brushing teeth or 
going to the toilet. This or is eating. absolutely what I was going to ask you about next. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do about um, that? Yeah. Well, that has to be sort of factored in, um, you know, and it's uh, it can be made a, a fun part of the scene, really, because it can be, I mean, I've done sort of cleaning someone, for example, like kind of hosing them down. So mm. it can be done in a way that's still in keeping with the scenario or, you know, making them use a bucket or something mm -hmm, if, mm -hmm. if the person likes a bit of humiliation or degradation or something like that. So there are ways to factor those things in, but I think the people who haven't really ever done a scene like that, they probably won't even think about no. those kinds <laughs> of details. Because that's uh, not part of the fantasy. <laughs> exactly, the exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. the difference between a fantasist and a, and, and a realist, I guess, is what is one of the biggest ways to vet people. Um, so, yeah, yeah that, that's some great advice there. It made me think about... So some people that who might be really curious about like starting this, this kind of thing, starting to explore the abduction stuff, but they might not have any experience yet. What advice would you have for those people to get started? Like how, how do you dip your toe in the water for this kind of thing? Um, I think, I think it's important to just think about what it is that they want really. Um, and, and 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 sort of go from there because I think sometimes people are not really that sure what it is that they're looking for right. in in that kind of situation, and then that's when they can maybe be led towards doing a scene that they don't really want to do or that is more someone else's agenda, mm. um, and then that's when it can maybe be unsatisfying for them if it's not really what what they had in mind, so. I think thinking clearly about that, because I did do probably one of the most unusual scenes I did was with a girl who was a virgin who never had any sexual experience whatsoever because of her religious background. Wow. But, yeah, yeah. I, I think this was in your writing as well. Like, please elaborate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, she basically decided not to have any kind of sexual experience because of her religion and she'd uh, stayed focused on that for a long time but basically reached a point where I wouldn't say she abandoned the the religion she sort of still had a lot of uh, I guess you would say respect for it etc but she also wanted to experience these uh, fantasies yeah. so uh, again we, we discussed a lot for a long time beforehand and I was very careful to try and find a way to do it that maybe would be consistent with someone who had no previous experience, you know, not, not going like, not going too, too far, yeah. too extreme. <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. But also being in line with, with the fantasy that, that she wanted and, having those safety factors involved. And, and also, I, I guess, that thing of intuition, uh, trusting your intuition with people as well to some yeah. degree. Yeah. Um, there should be those other factors there as well. But I think usually you get a sense of someone quite, quite quickly, and it's probably a good idea to trust that as well as those other factors being there. You know, it, it's probably making a list of, 
factors like the, their, their previous experience, whether they are aware of details, whether they're aware of safety, yeah. um, how they are as a person, whether they're convincing that they can pull something like that off in terms of their creativity and their, their skill set, etc. Yeah, so definitely so, like a mix of um, all of those things, but also trusting your gut when you're with yeah. someone. Yeah, yeah. Look. So with, with her, we we met beforehand with the girl with no experience. We okay. met beforehand, which yeah. I don't normally do okay. in a CNC scene yeah. or or an abduction scene. We don't usually meet before because that wouldn't be. But in her context, because of that, yeah. the fact that she had no previous experience, it seemed. Wow. a good way to do things and in some ways I think it added to it because I remember like afterwards after we did the scene um one of the things she commented was it was like a complete persona shift um and I think that was one of the most exciting things about it for her oh after that, meeting uh, you that you you yeah felt like a different person yeah interesting yeah. okay so so she she almost became like overly comfortable maybe <laughs> and, and that sort of added to the whole thing when when the scene actually did start so um she sort of froze a bit um which she didn't want to do she she had planned to sort of fight back <laughs> yeah um, yeah well I was gonna say like um is that ever a, a problem because sometimes when I play a bit more in this space like I don't feel like I can fully let myself go and really fight because I don't want to win <laughs> like I don't want to <laughs> make it too difficult you know like has that ever been a problem or um, um although I you, am trained in mixed martial arts I was so just that... remembering that note on your profile yeah it's probably probably fine <laughs> um but I usually use methods I'm not going to talk about those in detail because okay. uh, might spoil things. Um, okay, <laughs> but, but I have sort of methods for um, limiting someone's ability to do that. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, but but I but the fighting back. No, I haven't had a problem with it. Usually, people they do tend to to freeze up more than they expect to. I guess is oh, in my wow. experience. Wow, that's yeah, surprising. But I guess. That is a, a common fear response when you, you don't know how you're going to react, I'm sure, in that kind of situation. Yeah. It's, um, it's, um, it seems to be a, an almost natural thing in my, I mean, there's been, there's been some fighting back and I, I've definitely sustained a few minor injuries. <laughs> as long as they're but minor, nothing, then it'll just add to it. <laughs> nothing to, problematic yeah good have you had have you ever had anything go seriously wrong during a scene not no no luckily um I've, I've been fine with that kind of thing i i have also written if people are interested in that there's a extreme scene protocol that I'll, I've i'll link that in profile. the show notes yeah that's a good good one yep which, which has a lot of elements in there of how i approach things so i always for example set a limit in my mind of what I'm going to do, uh, sort of like pre-limits. Oh, so okay. before I go in, because I think where problems tend to arise is when someone goes into a scene and they're turned on and they're excited 
limited and they think, oh, right, so I'm going to I'm going to now go further than I originally planned to or I'm going to do something more risky than I originally planned to. And it's usually a bad idea to make a decision on the fly like that. So that's similar to like they tell subs not to um, increase their limits when you've started a scene because you you get all floaty and yeah. in the moment and all of that. So it's the same um, from the the tops perspective as well. If you get caught up, yeah. caught up in it, your judgment's probably not the best. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's it, you you get pulled along by your endorphins, etc. <laughs> and then you, then you you do something silly and and often also. In those kinds of scenarios, sometimes your your skills and things like that, if you're very sort of shaky and full of adrenaline and stuff mm. like that, your ability to, to do certain things can go down as well. Um, so that, that can be a factor. So it's often a good idea to not to not put too much pressure in in the sense of how much skill is needed to execute a particular thing when you're in the moment of the height of the scene. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'd imagine um, that makes me think of doing something like rope bondage, which in- involves a lot yeah. of intricate skill, whereas you might just be better off with duct tape or cuffs or something a little bit quicker. Yeah. Cu- cuffs usually. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are the best, are the best idea. Yeah. Duct tape and stuff. I mean, it's, it, I, I don't know. It's not. <laughs> I often watch those kinds of films where they use duct tape and stuff, and I'm thinking, if duct tape gets wet and you just like move your mouth a little bit, oh, it comes I off. know <laughs> when they just put a little piece over the mouth, and that somehow, yeah. oh, that is a pet hate of mine. There's no way you just open your mouth. Yeah. But yeah. On that note, um, do you have any tips for reducing noise? Because obviously, we we worry about innocent bystanders thinking something's something's going on that is non-consensual um yeah how do you well i i will i will use gags and things but mm-hmm. um you know like fabric in the mouth or um and 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 possibly tape around that but there's fabric in the mouth and then the tape around around the whole head and not not a small piece yeah, yeah around the whole head exactly Still a few loops. yeah um, yeah. um what about know, the people Sorry, um, I was going to say, what about the, at the beginning of the scene, like when you first grab someone, you mentioned this, this well, scene in a park. Hand over mouth, yeah. for example, you know, yeah. um, just sort of simple stuff. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the person experiencing the scene has to also have some yeah. sense as well and, and, and to realise that screaming really loudly in a public place <laughs> is not not a good idea. Maybe once you're in the the spaces that I use, um, usually they are pretty soundproof, so those kind of places are are fine for screaming and things like that. Once the person's in there, but obviously in public, the person has got to yeah. have some common sense as well. <laughs> yeah, at the sense. at the beginning part. I'm curious about the spaces that you do use. Um, are these like what what kind of locations how do you know it's soundproof or is it maybe in the middle of nowhere or is it a particular type of building or 
what kind it's of place is it? Usually, usually basements, or right. I have I have used abandoned buildings, warehouses. Yeah, nice. um, I've used all kinds of spaces. Um, well, I, I used to live in Eastern Europe, so um, there were a lot of like old Soviet oh. buildings and empty kind of derelict buildings and all kinds of spaces like that that can be accessed fairly easily or cheaply and um yeah. i had access to a place that was in in the middle of the woods and things like that but generally i've used a place in a city but well I, i've tested them in terms of sound there's there's one basement that i've used a few times um it's like a kind of old stone cellar i think it's medieval yeah and I've literally uh, put really loud music on or got someone to go outside and then I've shouted as loudly as I possibly <laughs> can and seen if they can hear it from from outside. And, yeah. and I know that, and you can't basically. So so I know that that space is, is pretty fine. So That's great. I feel like that doing that bit of prep work would help um, help you relax into that role during the scene if you're not having to worry about oh the neighbors might hear this or are we being too loud or whatever if you can just be like no i'm confident no one's going to hear whatever we do in here yeah i've used the same spaces sort of repeatedly there's probably like five or six spaces i know are ideal and yep. so i've used them repeatedly because we've been doing this for years so yep. it over the years i've found spaces that are sort of ideal so with a situation like it like a, an anonymous abduction type scene i wouldn't i wouldn't just use a random place that i'd never been to because you just you know it could be completely inappropriate for that yeah. scene and yeah yeah no that's that's very true um i can't believe it's almost been an hour already so i just wanted to quickly ask you before we wrap up about your negotiation word you've talked about. Um, so a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with safe words and the traffic light system, but um, how does the negotiation word differ from a safe word? Well, yeah, I, I invented the negotiation word because a lot of the people I'd communicated with who were interested in abductions and CNC scenes didn't like the idea of a standard safe word either because they felt they would use it too quickly mm -hmm. or or they just felt that it would take away the sense of being not being in control or yeah. you know that kind of thing so they didn't want a standard safe word but weren't comfortable with the idea of it being like completely without a safe word although some people were fine with that and i think as long as the person's fully aware and is okay with that then i think that can be fine too um as long okay. as the person as long as the top is fully experienced and knows what they're doing yeah that takes a lot of trust <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but some people that that's what they want and i'm not you know sorry. sorry that was my phone going off and i'm not going to invalidate someone if that's what they if that's what they want but the negotiation word is essentially it keeps the decision with with me so with the top but but the difference is they can they can say the negotiation word it will pause the scene mm -hmm. and then they can negotiate they can make their argument for what they can't handle or what 
is problematic or if there's you know they're experiencing pain or whatever it is they can negotiate but they've agreed that the final choice within that context of that experience or that production or that scene will be with the top will be with me so um, it's a different approach because they know that ultimately if I decide that their argument is not valid then it could have detrimental <laughs> outcomes in terms uh, of the, uh, so there could be a consequence yeah to it. so that's so uh, are you sure you want it, to use this word <laughs> yeah, worth it. yeah I like that yeah no, oh, that's great. That doesn't disrupt the dynamic then. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think um, my partner and I have um, sort of fallen into something sort of similar where, like, we use the traffic light system, but we've ended up just using the word yellow as a pause button um, just to pause and be like, oh, can you, like, shuffle this way or, you know, whatever it is um, if I need to communicate something with him and then green is just go play um but yeah I like the idea that this is like a, a, where it's a negotiation where you're still in that very much um that power play is still at hand and yeah it's like well you can make your case but it's ultimately up to the top whether they decide they're gonna yeah it can backfire yeah it can backfire that that's really fun I like that I'm, I'm definitely gonna try that out <laughs> um well Thank you so much for chatting with me. I, that went so quickly. I feel like I could ask you so many more questions about this stuff, but um, yeah, before we wrap up, is is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't talked about? No, I think that's, uh, I think we've covered quite a lot, but yeah, I mean, like I said, we could, we could talk about a lot more. There are so many levels and layers to it from, yeah. from the approaches to, Statism to CNC to, you know, even even the differences with CNC and rate play or or abduction play and all these kinds of things as well. But um, yeah, there's a lot to cover in this area. Is is that you've you've sparked my curiosity there? The differences between CNC and rate play. Um, is that a short answer or is that opening up Pandora's box? It's opening up Pandora's okay. box a bit. <laughs> But I'll say that CNCs are sort of, um, well, traditionally it was more something to do with master-slave dynamics rather than than a, than a synonym for rate play. Um, but it's become a kind of umbrella for, for different approaches to the idea of non-consent. So that could be, it was historically a little bit like total power exchange. So it, it could be seen in that kind of sense that or free use, as I know you're interested in that kind of idea as well, could also come under CNC, but it wouldn't be considered rate play, for example. Right, so, rate play is quite specific. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think so I, it's broader term. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense to me because there's the like sleep play and um, uh, blackmail and all sorts of stuff that you can incorporate into the CNC. Yeah category i think um i've been using cnc kind of synonymously with rape play just because the word rape has a lot of connotations to it and i know it's very uncomfortable for some people to hear that word so i generally prefer to use cnc where it's very clear that i'm talking about a consensual experience 
but um, it's also not as specific. And, and I think there is value in saying what you're talking about. Like you are talking about simulating rape. So it is good to use the right term for that. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people's fantasy is based on. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, and, and I, I don't feel personally there is, that it is problematic when we're talking about fantasy, because I, I've always, I've always kind of thought about that whole idea. Cause I remember there was a lot of criticism like, Oh, well, if, if you're a guy and you have fantasies of doing rape, then you must really want to do that in reality. And, and that that sort of logic seems to make sense on the surface. I heard it a lot from radical feminists. Mm. Um, and I took it on at one point and did think, oh, you know, there's some validity to this. But then at one point I realized that if you apply that same logic consistently, you would have to say that that therefore then means that a woman who fantasizes about rape actually really wants to be raped. Right. So if you extend the logic consistently to men and women, then suddenly you're actually advocating that women really want to be raped. So, which is oh, ironic like because yeah. it's, it's an argument that the radical feminists are making, but they're, of course, they're only applying it to one side of the equation. But so to me, fantasy and reality are very distinct things. And I think it's completely okay to fantasize about the darkest things that are out in the world because they're a way of working with them. Mm. It's a way of exploring the shadow side of who we are. It can actually be a very cathartic, spiritual, transformative thing. And I think it's really important to, to emphasize that and to not kind of confuse the domain of fantasy and play and exploration with with things that are actually very harmful and abusive because these things are actually the opposite of that. They can be very life-affirming, transformative mm. and full of erotic potential. So, Absolutely. Oh, that was a, a wonderful note to end on. I'm, I'm glad I, <laughs> I asked that last question. Um, thank you so much for having this chat with me today and for giving me your time. Before we wrap up, um, you mentioned that you're running a Zoom class for CNC play. I am, I yes. that right? Yeah. So can right you... Rape play and for, abduction. Rape play and abduction. Excellent. <laughs> um, can you tell, uh, tell us where we can get involved in that, where people can sign up for it? There's a link on my FetLife profile. Um, I've just launched it and I, I'll, I'll be posting it on a few different uh, groups on, on FetLife. And there's a link to Eventbrite where they can sign up for it. You could maybe put that in the notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yep. And yeah, I'm going to be covering all the practical aspects of it and also the safety side of it and also a lot of the approaches that I've used in terms of finding partners and all that kind of thing from both sides, like some of the things we covered in, in this yeah. conversation. And so I think it should be helpful for people. Oh, that sounds fantastic. It sounds like a, an excellent resource. As you were saying, like the, the lack of education in this space is dangerous. And if people are going to do it, like we're going to do it anyway. So if we can get access to better information and better practices, then that makes everyone a lot safer and, and a much more enjoyable experience. So that sounds excellent. Great. 
(laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I'll leave it there. Um, Thank you for everyone who's listening. As always, play safe, have fun, and I will catch you soon. Bye. Turns out I'm into it. Into it. Into it. Thanks for listening to Turns Out I'm Into It. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to hit subscribe and leave a rating and review. This will help other people just like you to find this podcast. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on FetLife or through the Harley Rabbit website. My name on Fet is Harley Rabbit, or one word, or you can message me direct through the website. Go to harleyrabbit.com forward slash podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the show. I will be back soon with another episode exploring the wonderful world of kink. Bye.